Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Good morning. Today is the day the Lord has made. It is the 16th day of December. It's Monday. Happy Monday, everyone. This is probably, um, for many people, the last working Monday. I don't know, Paul, we're working next Monday, aren't we? Uh, yeah, so we are. I was going to say today's the last working Monday uh, before Christmas, but it's probably not. It's the second to the last working Monday before Christmas. Uh, but lots of folks will be on vacation next week. Schools will be out. Um, And so let me just lift up. You know what? I'm going to lift up teachers this morning. I'm going to lift up teachers and school administrators and bus drivers. Um, uh, I've seen the viral video of something that that took place on a a public school bus. You've probably seen that viral video as well. Um, Stuff is happening in our school environments that, um, you know, adults are having a very hard time intervening and controlling. And things are going on in kids' families. And lots of kids are not only not being raised in intact families in terms of having a mom and a dad at home. They're also not being raised in any uh, religious context at all. And kids really benefit. I mean, we all benefit from being people who are a part of the church, but kids benefit tremendously from having uh, the knowledge of a moral center outside of themselves, uh, where they do not just become the judge and jury of everything going on around them all the time, uh, where they become the arbiter of truth. It's a really dangerous way to live. Uh, And it's really dangerous for the people around them because, you know, they have not formed a moral center yet. They don't have a moral compass. We were aware of the 13-year-old who was involved in the stabbing death of a Barnard College student in New York City this past week. Uh, And so I just want to lift up teachers. I want to lift up school administrators. I want to lift up uh, school bus drivers. I want to lift up everybody. I want to lift up counselors. Um, I just, I mean, as I'm saying these uh, these segments of of people who are serving our young people today, I bet there are individuals coming to mind. Maybe it's you. Um, and so I, I just want you to know that I am really mindful of the challenges that are being faced by uh, people in who are serve, Christians who are serving in public schools today. And so let's just lift them up in this season. They are um, enduring a lot of criticism. Uh, I got an email from a listener who was raising concern about uh, one 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 person at a school um, that he's engaged with, uh, and she's raising concern that you know there's a holiday tree, and that holiday tree is um, you know that's <clears throat> that's that's culturally offensive to everybody who doesn't celebrate that holiday. Now, my, you know, mind you, not that every other uh, expression of this time of year of holiday thing is up as well, but the holiday tree she finds particularly offensive because, after all, we all know it's a Christmas tree. And so, you know, if we all know it's a Christmas tree, then it's a Christmas tree, even if you call it a holiday tree, which I find to be a really interesting progressive argument today. Okay, uh, we are in Luke chapter 16 on the 16th day of December, also the 16th day of Advent. My guess is this is a parable told by Jesus um, that you have not heard preached on very often because it is the it is the parable of what I would describe as shrewd management. 
And in order to understand the opening parable in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, you really have to, I mean, you really have to listen carefully to what Jesus is saying. Because in this parable, you know, it's not as if God is the manager or God is the landowner or God is the the giver of the gifts, which is often the case in other parables that he tells. So pay attention when you read this parable. He's talking about a worldly manager and a worldly employee. Because what is complemented is the shrewdness in dealing with your own kind. And the manager is basically complementing the shrewdness of his employee in dealing with people of the world in worldly ways. Jesus is not complementing that. Jesus is then turning and saying, um, look, if you haven't been trustworthy in handling your worldly wealth, you know, who could trust you with true riches? And there he's talking about heavenly wealth. If you've been trustworthy, if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, he's talking there about management, who's going to give you property of your own? Again, he's talking there about uh, things that are kingdom oriented. And this is where in verse 13, we get this verse. No one can serve two masters. Now, Jesus is telling this parable in direct opposition to the Pharisees. So you have to know that when you're listening to this. No one can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And verse 14 says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. The word sneering is translated variously in various places. Um, Seething with anger is probably a better word than sneering. And he said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So there's this judgment of the heart going on here and this reality that you cannot serve both God and money. We will pick up on the second half of the chapter um, in the second hour, but I wanted to lead off with that, asking again today, where in the word are you? Where in the word are you today? I'm in the 16th chapter of the Gospel According to Luke. When we come back, I'm going to be talking with Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post. He and I have a number of uh, headlines that we are going to survey through a Christian worldview. Joining me now, Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post. You can follow him on Twitter at at Brandon M. Show. You can also find him online at thechristianpost.com. Brandon, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. So good to be with you. It's always great to have you on. Okay, so I want to start with um, a story that I think many would call a story about burnout. Um, And yet I would rather frame this as a conversation about a megachurch pastor who is stepping away um, from the pulpit for some self-care, recognizing that sabbatical is important for everybody. Right. Well, and this guy is actually a local here in D.C. He's a pastor of First um, Alfred Street Baptist Church. It's one of those sort of historic African-American megachurches, uh, Dr. Um, Reverend Howard John Wesley, who I've not seen preach, but I've heard he's quite the preacher. Um and you're right. He's taking a sabbatical and just talking about how very frank address he gave to his church, saying that he was um, tired in a way that one night of sleep ain't going to fix, <laughs> uh, tired in his soul, and it feels like he's far from God. And uh, he's taking a sabbatical. This is so crucial because I think um, one of the things that we see when pastors who 
you know, have moral failings that are severe, it's because they're burned out. And the enemy really likes to play a number on, you know, good pastors and ministers that when they're down and they get ensnared in all kinds of, you know, gross sin, it's usually because they haven't taken good care of themselves. And we forget the assault that pastors are under. And I can tell you, Carmen, living in the D.C. area, there are there are just myriad challenges of doing life and doing ministry here that, you know, everywhere in the United States has its own challenges, but everything here in the D.C. area is amplified um, times 10. And so, you know, frankly, I think it's a, every pastor should be able to have and take a sabbatical because it's just, um, we need to rest. <laughs> Yeah, so I want to read a few quotes um, from the article. And again, you guys can go to ChristianPost.com and and read this piece. Megachurch pastor steps away from pulpit because he feels far from God and tired in soul. Um, you know, he's announcing that he's going he's gonna to walk away from every responsibility that he has as a pastor for the next several months. And he says, I can't, you can't pour out of an empty cup. It's very dangerous for your pastor to be on empty. I need to take care of me. He says, I'm tired. I'm tired in a way that no night of sleep um, ain't going to fix. I'm tired in my soul. Um, and I want to, uh, I want to lift that up this today because I want, um, for every person listening right now to consider that your pastor might be soul tired and your pastor might need a sabbatical. Um, busyness does not, uh, just busyness in and of itself does not honor God. Um, and, and this is not, uh, there's nothing unfaithful about taking a break. And there's nothing unfaithful, and there may be no gift more cherished by your pastor than giving them a break, a real break. So I want you, I want you to consider when the last time your pastor had a sabbatical, when, when was the last time your pastor had a sabbatical, and really seriously consider whether or not um, it's time. It's time to uh, take on the burden of responsibility of your own congregation and offer your pastor a sabbatical. All right, um, can we pivot to this James Younger uh, case? Um, we have talked about James Younger before. He's a seven-year-old Texas boy. And then as soon as I say that, even that simple description and the use of his name is at issue in this in this case. Yes, Carmen, this is one of the most you know heartbreaking stories that I've ever reported on and that any of my colleagues have here. This, uh, wow, it's just so okay, are you, disturbing. When, you, when you report on this story, do you not say to yourself, how is it possible this is happening in America? Because I, uh, I will admit yes, to you, that's absolutely. one of my questions. I, I'm, I, okay, oh, sorry, I have to yes. let you talk. I, no, yes, I am. I, I, am, I just am speechless. Um, it, it's the medicalization of gender, particularly in children as, as young as young James and who's seven. Um, his... His mother believes that he's a girl and she's trying to transition him chemically and then has speculated, has, has, has considered an email correspondent about, you know, removing his genitals surgically at some point. I mean, it's, this is, there, Carmen, there's no other way to say it. This is diabolical. This is so demonic. And um, she, um, her, his mother appointed, uh, tried, to, tried to get this judge who decided in, back in October to award joint conservatorship to both parents, saying that both parents would have 50-50 uh, decision-making power over the medical and psychological treatment of this of this kid. And um, that was after a jury had awarded the mother sole conservatorship based on, it ended up being based on sort of financial status as she made more money than the father because she's a pediatrician. But um, she, she complained that the judge made a, I mean... <laughs> comment about the case on her Facebook page after the verdict was issued saying that neither any legislature nor the governor had any effect on the decision, 
Well, she got that judge removed, and now it's up to a regional administrative judge to appoint a no judge to oversee the case as, as it is ongoing. Um, but it's just the latest chapter in a, an ongoing saga of some of the most grotesque child abuse now permitted. How it's permitted, I don't know. It, it's just people need to wake up to what's going on in children as there is an entire gender beast industry trying to mutilate the genitals and transition children into a physical impossibility, that of making them into the opposite sex. It's so grotesque. It is deeply troubling. All right, I'm going to continue my conversation with Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post right after the break. We are going to talk about um, the president of the United States, who some say is facing pushback from evangelical voters. We're going to talk about that next here on Mornings with Carmen. Welcome back. We are in the middle of a conversation with Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post. You can follow Brandon on Twitter at Brandon M. Show. You can also read what he's writing at ChristianPost.com. Um, so President Trump has had quite a week with evangelicals. He hosted uh, some worship leaders at the White House last week. That has been an interesting storyline. Um, I heard Robert Jeffress say in a television interview, I think it was just Saturday, um, it was certainly over the weekend that he's predicting that Trump is going to have stronger support from evangelical voters in 2020, um, even than he garnered in 2016. He was pointing out positively to what uh, the Trump administration has done on the pro-life and, and pro-religious liberty fronts. He was also pointing to uh, judicial appointments, and he pointed to the strident pro-abortion position of every Democrat that's currently running you know, on that side of the aisle for president. Um, and so I think that, you know, we see pushback from evangelicals, but we also hear other evangelicals saying, no, no, the tide of evangelical support for the president is not going to be in any way um, tempered. What are you hearing specifically on the Syrian issue? Well, I would agree uh, with you about those what those those items that you mentioned. Um, the, the Syrian issue is interesting in that uh, if your listeners will remember earlier this year, President Trump made the controversial move to withdraw troops from the northern region of Syria, um, which was widely criticized both sides of the political aisle, saying that he betrayed the Kurdish people who've been our longtime allies. And so uh, Senator Lindsey Graham explained this was I saw a Kurdish news outlet report this. Uh, he was at a banquet um, giving some remarks and then had a Q&A discussion with the president there and that that move was so contested. Um, one of the factors that Senator Graham said the pushback that they got from, you know, Christians in the United States was was overwhelming, um, and that they did not agree with that decision. That people were praying for the Kurds. They didn't want to see the United States, you know, sell them out because they've been such, you know, stalwart fighters against Islamic State and other malactors in the region. Um, ultimately, you know, there was a change of course in that policy because uh, there was just, it was more of a foreign policy analysis of realizing that the decision is, um, I mean, it's a complex, you know, complicated mess over there in the unique, the Middle East, obviously, and I'm certainly not qualified to opine, but the decision uh, that, that Trump made to sort of reconsider some of the strategy was that, um, well, that it would be more sustainable, that there was oil fields in 
in that region and that you wanted to keep Iran out of out of taking those oil fields. And so there's multiple considerations, of course. But the Christian opposition to um, withdrawing and sort of leaving our Kurdish allies vulnerable was a contributing factor into um, into that sort of change of foreign policy strategy. So I think that um, the Trump administration, via the vice president, uh, has recently uh, visited um, visited the area. You you included your article here that days before Thanksgiving. Vice President Mike Pence visited Erbil, Iraq, right. uh, the Kurdistan region, reaffirming the U.S. commitment to combating Islamic State actors there. Um, I think it's um, I think it's important to recognize that uh, we we have not broken faith. I'm hoping we have not broken faith with um, with allies in the region. And for Christians, you know, there's this there's this. If you make a commitment to a people, you make a commitment to a people. It's not until, right. you know, the tide turns and, oh, you know, well, now we're going to switch alliances or, or, or allegiances. I mean, our allegiance right. is to Christ. And so of course. I just, yeah. And so I think that um, uh, it's one of those stories to keep keep an eye on. And we're certainly going to have more conversations over the next Absolutely. year uh, in terms of evangelical support for the president. So this is just one, one thread in that story. Um, Brandon, I really want to talk about this link between faith and charitable giving. This uh, this is fascinating. I actually earmarked or, you know, like bookmarked um, this, the big report, the Lilly report. And then I'm mm-hmm. so glad that you guys wrote it up so that I didn't have to read it. Well, yes, it is. It was an interesting report. And basically the key finding is that as Americans abandon faith, there's a concurrent link in a drop in charitable giving. Um, you know, we've, we've, talked on the air before, Carmen, and I've seen a lot of journalistic analysis about the rise of the so-called nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S. And as as they grow and as more and more people, you know, abandon their faith, it also affects their giving. Now, part of that um, is related to the recent downturn economically, you know, back in the the housing bubble burst, you know, 2008-9, and the Great Recession happened. There was a, a steep drop after that, um, but in but since that time we've also we have also seen a, a drop in practice of faith, particularly among the young. Um, and as as the economy has recovered, that that giving has not increased. And so um, there's sort of the share of people the, peop- the share that that people do have to give it's just substantially less. Um, and you know, a lot of the people in the sort of the lower socioeconomic strata, it's still that's not yet picked back up. So it will be interesting to see. I um, I, I certainly believe that as as Christians, we we can and should be, you know, people of kingdom generosity that give even in times of of lack. Um, you know, ultimately God says to test Him with our giving, um, the seed that He's faithful and. Uh, I, so I say Christians continue to be generous, you know, uh, yeah, I, I believe God will continue to bless his people, even as we show faithfulness in that regard. But it is, um, yeah, I, I think it's interesting to see that as his faith does decline in America in some ways that charities are not receiving as much. Um, there's just, a, a, it's a link to everything. Uh, for the first time in 2018, you know, religious groups, um, according to this data, received only 29% of total giving, and that's the first year it's ever fallen below the 30% marker of overall giving, um, which that's according to Give it, Giving USA, which that's an annual report on philanthropy that the Lilly report 
cited. So it's a fascinating study. It is fascinating. I um, here was one of the one of the sentences that I uh, I marked. With recent documented decline in the number of people who self-identify as Christian, alongside the 9% increase in the number of agnostics, atheists, and nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who no longer identify with any particular religious affiliation, charitable giving has also dropped. I mean, you can can watch those two trend lines uh, mirror one another. Um, And then you also reference that in the downturn in the economy, let's say back in 2009, yes, I mean, that's when we're looking about 2009, 2010 is when this turn really happens. Um, it doesn't rebound. It doesn't, it's, it's as if once people stop giving to religious charities, they don't start giving to those religious charities again when their personal economics change. It's as if once once they stop giving to to churches and other religious institutions, if and when they start giving again, they're not giving to uh, to religious causes. I think that is interesting. I think that's a fascinating caveat of all of this. Um, Brandon, you and I got to leave yes. it right there. I'm going to get a nudge here from Paul in just a second. So um, thank you, as always, so much for joining us. Have a great day. Thank you. Happy Christmas. And Merry Christmas. You. Merry Christmas. Thank, yes. Yeah. Okay, have you noticed that there are times that people misappropriate Christmas for their own political ends uh, on the right and on the left? So Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College and I are going to talk about that. How, how do we help us see and resist how people are using or misappropriating Christmas for their own political ends? I'm also going to ask him to give us an impeachment update. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Now, I'm definitely no fortune teller, but I can always predict when pain will appear in the life of parents. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. After several decades of working with parents and teens, imminent pain has become an easy thing for me to spot. It happens anytime a mom or dad confronts foolish thinking or disagrees with their child's opinion, or when a parent needs to reestablish their authority, expose wrong motives, or limit or restrict their teens. But while these things may be painful, they're absolutely necessary to help teens grow and mature. Do you avoid discipline because you know it'll be painful? Don't let that keep you from doing your job. The discomfort will soon pass, and someday your efforts will be deeply rewarded. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College is back with us today. We're going to talk about the intersection of politics and religion or, I don't know, the influence of politics on the religious and the influence of the religious on the political. Adam, welcome back. Welcome and Merry Christmas season to everyone. Merry Christmas season. Absolutely. Um, uh, I'm trying to, I, I would love to be wishing people a happy Advent, but everybody is already in the Merry Christmas and so I'm in it too. So let me just go ahead and say to all of you who are like strict keepers of the calendar, I know that Christmas doesn't start until Christmas, and then we celebrate it for 12 days. But we're celebrating it in advance because sometimes it's the last time we get to talk to somebody before Christmas, and so we're saying Merry Christmas. There you go. How's that? I, I think that is a very judicious attempt to, to uh, uh, put it to both sides the right <laughs> way. So that, that I, I, I'm in support. 
So, Adam, I hear a lot of um, finger point. I, I hear and see a lot of finger pointing. Um, uh, people saying, hey, that that group of people is misusing, misappropriating the Christmas story for their own political ends. Um, it happens on both sides of the aisle without question. Um, you actually think there are some helpful considerations, uh, implications that Christians can bring to bear in this Christmas season related to the Christmas story. So share share that with us. Right. And I think it is true that sometimes people read Scripture looking for something to basically confirm their priors, which uh, knowing our sinful nature is probably not a good thing, uh, definitely not a good thing. But I, I do think that at this time, considering the idea that the the King of Kings and Lord of Lords becomes man— and the first, the way he does it, uh, doing it as a, a a humble son of a carpenter, uh, with parents that couldn't even give the the full offering for him after he was uh, uh, circumcised. Uh, I think if you look at the way it was seen by by those who came, uh, particularly that uh, that the angels came to the shepherds, uh, again the humble. Um, if you look at Mary's uh, Magnificant, where she talks about um, that uh, uh, he that she, that he has, meaning God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate, that that, that you get this this idea that um, this king has come to serve, and that therefore, if the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has come to serve, and particularly to serve the humble serve the powerless and the weak, that uh, perhaps uh, kings who uh, the scripture sometimes calls gods with a little g, I'm thinking of Psalm 82, that maybe that is something that they should take into account uh, to uh, contravene the tendency toward arrogance, the tendency toward tyranny, that uh, political power, as even modeled by the king of kings, is servant leadership and that it is for the good, especially of those that are the most vulnerable and the most in need of protection. And I think that uh, the way that the story is played out is therefore something that we can uh, celebrate this this Christmas time as something that can teach us some uh, about uh, uh, how a more healthy politics might look. You know, as we as we walk around um, in the in the Christmas story, I mean, even if we just take the characters, um, you know, that we see in a in a crush or in a nativity scene pretty much anywhere, and you just tell their stories. If you actually get into the story of Mary, and you get into the story of Joseph, and you get into the story of the shepherds, and you, even though I realize that it's, you know, the timeline is greatly compressed if we want to put the magi or the wise men at the manger, but, um, you know, it, when we talk about uh, kings recognizing the kingship or the lordship of Jesus— you know the the magi coming to bow down to him is 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 a critical i mean it's just a critical part of the conversation other kings do not bow down they seek his life from the very beginning um you know for the preservation of their own political ends and jesus coming i mean the the incarnation of god in in flesh it's the most political move uh, i could ever imagine right i mean that's 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 the politics of the kingdom of heaven being brought to bear among the kingdoms of men. 
at the inbreaking of the ultimate kingdom and the ultimate rule, the, a foretaste of what happens later, and 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 your the two different responses of kings, Herod versus the Magi, makes me think of of Psalm two, which many people I think rightly believe is pointing forward to Christ, where it talks first about the kingdoms of this world will conspire and plot against God and against His anointed, and then coming back and saying, you know. God will rule over them, whether they want to be or not, and then saying, um, uh, rulers be wise, kiss the sun, and uh, to therefore bow down and, and worship him as the ultimate ruler. And so you see, uh, the Magi is a foretaste of, of the rule of Christ being uh, obeyed, and then you see Herod and his despicable acts as the uh, uh, the sinful uh, fighting against that that we will see up until the end of time as well, uh, this sort of uh, microcosm of the cosmic struggle uh, that will culminate in, in in the ultimate renewal of heaven and earth. The, the arrival of the Magi and the fact that they bow down to him and recognize who he is and declare it to others, um, I when I read that and I consider it in conversation with, let's say, the words of Simeon, who speaks this uh, incredible prophecy over the infant Jesus in the temple, um, the the universal nature of Jesus as uh, as Messiah, Jesus as um, the Lord's anointed, not just for the Jews but for everyone, is pretty profound. Oh, absolutely, and and it it marks such a shift in uh, uh, the gospel being a come-and-see religion, where people come to Israel, come to Judah, and see, and then are incorporated into it, to the beginning of it becoming something that will be worldwide, that a gospel that will go out and find and seek and take people for the kingdom of God, and that that is a massive mercy to, to all of the world, that that switch occurs and a massive grace to those of us who are born uh, after the advent of Christ. I, I love the framing of that, because we often think of the Magi as the come-and-see crowd, um, and yet they, they are sort of the, the pivot the pivotal characters. Um, you know, we're no longer going to Israel to come and see what a relationship with God looks like. We are now extending um, the, this reality that, that Christ has come as the Savior once for all. It's really, it's really extraordinary. Um, okay, Adam, why don't we take a quick break? When we come back, let's pivot our conversation. Let's get an impeachment update. And then I do want to visit with you a little bit about this, what I think is historic uh, election in Great Britain. So that's up next with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We'll be right back. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know? Continuing my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Uh, he is on Twitter at Carrington AM. Adam, let's. Uh, I don't even quite know how to get into the impeachment conversation. Uh, we are at a historic moment. Uh, this week, the full House of Representatives is likely going to vote on two impeachment, um, what are they called, charges, uh, articles of impeachment that, uh, that have been recommended or referred to them um, by the House Judiciary Committee. So just... Uh, Wow. Let's just talk about where we are in terms of of this political reality, because this is this is historic. 
It is. And at least to put it in historical context, this will be if if the articles are approved, and I, I think at least one, if not both of them will be, it will only be the third time in American history that the House has voted to impeach, and by that meaning formally charge a president with conduct that is worthy of being removed from office. And the other two were uh, Andrew Johnson in 1868 and uh, uh President Bill Clinton in the late 1990s. And what will happen now is there will be a, a floor debate on the House floor uh, for the entire House of Representatives that will probably last most of this coming Wednesday. And then either at the end of the day or on Thursday, they'll vote. And any of the articles that are approved will then see for only the third time again in American history, a uh, trial in the Senate where the uh, senators sit as um uh, jurors hear evidence presided over by uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, and then there'll be a, a vote uh, to whether to remove the president or not. Now, I don't see that happening, but just the fact that we're going to get to that point is quite historic and quite rare in American history. And the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court um, will preside because to have the vice president, who is the president of the Senate, provide, or preside would absolutely uh, be a conflict of interest because the person on trial is his direct superior. And if that person is removed, the one the, the one whose place he would take like it's complicated. It is. And it does show at least some the wisdom of, of the framers of the Constitution in saying we want to make this have at least some impartiality to it. And to have the chief justice presiding over it does that and at least says that someone who is trained in the law will try to be in many ways a safeguard to make sure that there's as much due process given to the president and as much uh, formality to try to make sure the process is as fair as as is possible given the environment uh, to both sides as as the as this case gets adjudicated before them it it I, I really suggest and I know there's a lot of partisan feelings on both sides there's a big question of how legitimate this is or how necessary it is on both sides. But uh, also just to see how our process works, this is a rare instance to see it. And I'm not saying it's good, but it's a rare instance that you get to see a part of the Constitution work that is not a normal proceeding of our of our normal order of, of running the government. So I'm going to um, take that word normal. This is not something that is a normal part of what we see taking place. And yet I have heard a lot of talk that this will now be the new normal, that this, this because it has been so partisan, um, that this will normalize impeachment no matter who holds the majority um, in the House if the person in the office of the president is of the other party and they think they can get away with it, that this will become the normal process. That sounds terrible to me. I hope it's not true because the fact that it's been so rare and it's been so rare that we've even impeached a president and have never removed one. And I think it's good that we have made even the accusation of impeachment. And that's all it is, is an accusation 
toxic because it is so in it such uh, put it on such a pedestal i think is a good thing and to normalize it and make it a regular part of politics is i think to to take scandal and accusation and sometimes possibly depending upon the charges even innuendo and make it a normalization of, of the political process and i think that is going to be toxic to uh uh trying to respect elections. It's going to be toxic to trying to get the branches to work with each other. And I think it's going to be toxic in making our politics even more personality and scandal driven, more gotcha driven and less driven by trying to pass policies, laws and other matters that might actually help the American people. So uh, I, I hope that's not true, but I, I, I've learned over the last couple of years not to say never, to never say never. And, and, and I hope that that would be a, a Christmas wish that uh, we do not descend into that as part of a nor- normalizing the abnormal. Put that on Adam's Christmas list, Christmas wish list. Okay. We did Christmas wish lists last night because um, the uh, <clears throat> the person who communicates with Santa in our house uh, didn't have a list from two of the like 20 people. And I was like, um, <clears throat> if I'm going to, you know, communicate effectively, uh, now's the time. So there you go. Uh, thank you for sharing that Christmas wish with us. Um, let's uh, I would just love I know we want to talk about the IG report and its fallout, but I'm going to actually set that aside. We're going to be talking about that. My guess is for a long period of time. So that one we're going to circle back to. I would just love your take on the British election. Um, I, it, it seems to me that British politics tends to run just ahead of American politics. I think of Margaret Thatcher preceding Reagan. I think of Blair preceding Bush. And now we see Boris Johnson, who did precede Trump um, at at some level. Uh, So do you think that what happened in this, I'll call it conservative landslide in the British election, do do you think it it portends anything for us in the U.S.? I I think it could based on two criteria. And, And one is, who do the Democrats elect as their standard bearer? And and what this really showed was Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labor Party, was about as toxic and polarizing of a left-leaning figure as you could get. He, he had uh, uh, charges of anti-Semitism against him, which were very hard for him to shake for good reason. He w- ran very hard to the left as far as the British political spectrum is and really alienated massive amounts of voters, including voters that look a little bit like uh, sort of the working class Trump voters in the United States that voted uh, 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 conservative for the first time in about 40, 50 years. And so I, I think that would be one of the, 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 the warnings, possibly, that some have sounded to, to the Democrats about how far left they go and how toxic of a figure they have. And the other is I think you're just seeing a continuation of a, a kind of a populist versus a, a maybe technocratic or bureaucratic politics that is, I think, even more pronounced in Europe and that seems to be taking shape a little bit here, uh, a kind of a, a working class versus maybe upper class. And it'll be interesting to see how 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 much that plays out here. But I think certainly there are some things that both sides should be looking at regarding this election that I, I think portends potential battle lines going on here in 2020. I heard uh, one person describe it as the group of people who actually works makes, grows, and moves stuff versus people who make rules about those people. 
<laughs> yeah, and 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 it's interesting uh, in the new economy uh, that uh, we have. Uh, you know, maybe this is wrong for certain reasons. We have um, given more. Uh, uh, we we give more money to people using their brains than people using their brawn. When mm. both, when human beings, as Abraham Lincoln said, are made with heads and hands, meaning both are a legitimate part of labor, both are a legitimate part of of exercising vocation under the providence of God, and both need to be respected. And I think part of underneath all of this is respecting the concept of a God-given vocation wherever and however it manifests itself. Mm. I love that. All right, Adam, you and I have to leave it right there. We are going to return on a uh, on, on a future conversation as as the FISA system or process, I'm sure, is going to be re- reviewed and a subject of conversation in the new year um, because there's no way that this IG report just goes away. So we'll we'll do that in the new year. Adam Carrington, thank you so much and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you all as well. We'll be right back. Okay, so um, do, do you guys remember Y2K? Because at this point in time, in 1999, so I realize this 20 years ago now, so only some of us remember this. Paul, do you remember Y2K? Oh, I remember it. Like it was nuts. The world at this time was going to end our yeah. infrastructure. Yeah. Everything, our entire infrastructure was going to collapse. Um, you know, all of our computers were going to die, uh, and nobody was really sure what was going to happen at the stroke of midnight really to every data and financial system around the globe. Um, And then, of course, midnight came and went and nothing extraordinary happened, except that we entered um, a new year, another year of the Lord, uh, another millennia, another century, another decade. And we're now almost 20 years into that. What did you think would be true by 2020? When you looked ahead at Y2K, what did you think would be true by 2020? How many of those things are true now and how many other things you didn't expect have happened? Um, That's some of the thinking I'm going to be doing here toward year end. We'll be right back for another hour of Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.